The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for question. There is a time. For answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. We return with Peter Lavenda. This is part two of two. If you're just joining this show, there is a part one in the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com. We're discussing Peter Lavenda's new book called The Hitler Legacy. And this is a chilling book, folks. It traces from Nazism all the way to where we are today with global jihad and how Nazism influenced all that. And he makes a great case and argues that it was Nazism that actually declared the first global jihad and gave the ideology for global jihad to the Islamists that are, are terrorizing the world right now. So this is a good, solid book full of great research to bring you from where we were to where we are. And I think it's essential, essential reading, folks, for everybody living in the 21st century. The book is called The Hitler Legacy, The Nazi Cult in Diaspora, Diaspora, How It Was Organized, How It Was Funded, and Why It Remains a Threat to Global Security in the Age of Terrorism. Peter has traversed the world doing research and has crossed paths with many unsavory characters, including the Palestinian Liberation Organization. We're going to get to, get to that in this, uh, this show as well. Ku Klux Klan as well. In South America, the Nazi sanctuary called Colonia de Ginatat. In Chile, in Indonesia, he met Abu Bakar Basir, who planned the Bali bombing in 2002, and he was instrumental in creating several terrorist groups. Peter's also studied secret societies across the globe. It's my pleasure to welcome back for part two of the show, Peter Lavenda, all the way from Pennsylvania, where it is balmy out there. Apparently it's 70 degrees and he's got a suntan lotion on and no, I'm kidding, folks, because as I look outside my studio window, which is a few hundred miles from where Peter is in Kingston, Ontario, uh, the snows region tonight. Isn't that wonderful? Yep. Yeah, that time of season, folks. Santa Claus is will soon be on his way. Let's go back. I had left off our last show. Are you ready for this, folks? Have you ever heard of Lee Harvey Oswald? You know, the guy that purportedly killed John F. Kennedy? Well, guess what? He's got some stunning, stunning Nazi connections, and Peter's got that all documented in his book, as I hold up the right side. Uh, Peter, can we go to Lee Harvey Oswald? And the, the stuff that, that you found out is blew me away because I had no idea and I as you know I'm a big JFK guy I'm going to plug my own book I've even written a book myself on the Kennedy assassination uh, featuring Ted Sorensen I have his last interview and I had no idea there was a Nazi connection with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald can we go there right away sure if it's, it's something that I wasn't aware of either once yeah. I started this whole Hitler thing back about six years ago all this other stuff started cropping up and I couldn't believe what I was looking at um, yes I started with an address book for Ratline. I was trying to deconstruct a, uh, an address book for a couple of Austrian Nazis who were living in Indonesia. And I became sort of fond of address books and thinking there's a lot of information in there. It's like the, the older equivalent of today's Facebook pages. All your friends are in there with smiley faces and you know who is who and what is what, right? And I, I said, you know, they, they declassified. I mean, in the Warren report, they had a copy of Lee Harvey Oswald's address book. Let's just take a look and see what's there. And, of course, in there is the address of the American Nazi Party in Lee Harvey Oswald's own hand. 
the address of the party in Queens, New York, in Hollis, Queens, and the, and the name of Dan Burroughs. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the American Nazi Party and its history, uh, Dan Burroughs was a very prominent member, a leader in the American Nazi Party, uh, who committed suicide uh, when it was revealed that he was actually Jewish. Yeah. Um, and he committed suicide in the home of Roy Frankhauser. And if you read My Unholy Alliance, you'll, there's a bit in there about Roy. He was known as Riot Roy Frankhauser. He was a Ku Klux Klan member. He was a prominent uh, neo-Nazi, um, very right-wing kind of guy. But at the same time, he had intelligence connections that were rather murky. Uh, it was believed that he worked at one point for Mossad. He claimed he did anyway, uh, the Israeli intelligence service. Uh, he, for a while, worked for Lyndon LaRouche. Uh, the guy had a very checkered past, and I had met him. I had, he had uh, actually not exactly threatened me, but he did take a Luger out of his pocket and put it on the table between us uh, when I was there to interview him, um, as just to warn me uh, against any possible violent action against him. You have to understand that you can't really see on the radio or even on this uh, television screen, on this video screen, but I was not exactly a bulky guy. Um, I was not like a 250-pound wrestler. I weighed at that time about 130, soaking wet, and this guy felt I was a threat and had to pull a Luger out of his uh, pocket and stick it there. Very strange, very theatrical stuff went on. So when I found a connection, Roy Frankhauser to Dan Burroughs to Lee Harvey Oswald, I'm thinking, what is this all about? And as I look further in the address book, he had a German vocabulary he had written down. It looked like he was really intent on studying German and maybe going to Germany. Uh, he even had the name of a German teacher. Uh, that he was going to take lessons with, I suppose. All of this was very carefully documented in his address book, uh, along with a lot of Russian names, Russian addresses from his Moscow period. So it only came at, at much length and much research did I discover that back around the time when he defected to Moscow, this is after he left the Marines uh, on a hardship uh, claim or something, and uh, his mother was sick or some story like that, he uh, wound up in Moscow. We all know the Moscow story. We all know he managed to go to Moscow. What we don't know, what many of us may not realize, is that be between the Marine period and the Moscow period, he actually was planning on going to college, obviously to improve himself. And uh, he had applied at all the universities you would imagine. Not. He applied to one university, one university only. It was a college called the Albert Schweitzer College in the small town of Churvalden in the Swiss Alps. This is a town that has maybe 500 people maximum, maybe 50 students maximum. No one's ever heard of the place. It seems to have been run by a couple of Unitarians who created it, and the Unitarians themselves had intelligence connections and connections back into the Eisenhower administration. There was something very fishy going on. and. While this book was being written, while the Hitler legacy was being written, documents uh, showing, proving that Oswald had applied to this college and was accepted by this college. This is a guy who barely got out of high school, right? He has no real education. He didn't, you know, he had, uh, it's a college application, crying out loud. He sent in $25, which in 1959 was a lot of money. He sent in his $25, he was accepted to the college, accepted to the college, and he never showed up. Instead, he wound up shortly thereafter in Moscow, and the rest is history. What was he doing going to this particular university? What did this have to do with anything? Uh, there's a whole story behind it that we as yet don't know. But another odd connection to all of this, those documents that went up for sale, actually they were being auctioned uh, at an auction site just a few months ago, I believe. Uh, the documents proving that he had applied to college in his own handwriting, his acceptance letter, all of this was auctioned off for about $10,000. I don't know who bought it. It's an unknown buyer. I don't know who put it up for auction, but as I tried to research who had Lee Harvey Oswald's personal effects, of course, it was his mother, his mother, Marguerite Oswald, who was represented by a man called H. Keith Thompson. H. Keith Thompson was her literary executor. After the assassination, uh, Marguerite looked like she wanted to write a book about, you know, knowingly Harvey Oswald, maybe trying to re revive his reputation in some way and somehow. And uh, this guy called H. Keith Thompson befriended her and became the literary executor of Marguerite Oswald. H. Keith Thompson 
was a very prominent Nazi in the United States. He was an American-born uh, person of, of some means, of some financial means. While a high school student, he managed to become a member of the Nazi security service, the SD. He took an oath of loyalty to Hitler. He fought in World War II. I don't know what he did, but he was an Operation High Jump, among other things, this weird, bizarre U.S. Uh, expedition to Antarctica that took place the year after World War II was over. Um, I've never been able to figure that out, but he was part of that. And then shortly thereafter, he became very prominent in the American Nazi movement. He was one of their leaders, and he was financially powerful as well. He could afford to be. And he was friends with Otto Skorzeny, with Hans Ulrich Rudel, with all of the prominent names in Odessa, the Nazi underground. He was a very important guy in, in, the, in the Nazi world, an unrepentant Nazi, a man who claimed, who was proud of the fact he took an oath of loyalty to Hitler, who maintained this to the end of his days. He was in contact with Nazis in Latin America. He was in contact with a man called Johann von Leers, a very bizarre little guy. Von Leers spoke many languages fluently, uh, Arabic, Hebrew, languages of that name. He was very fascinated with biblical studies, but he was a notorious rabid anti-Semite uh, who eventually wound up in Egypt working for Nasser. But prior to that, he ran a newspaper in Buenos Aires called Der Weg, The Way, which was a Nazi newspaper to which 8th Keith Thompson contributed articles and Skorzeny contributed articles, and Hans Ulrich Rudel contributed articles. This was the Nazi organ. This was something the Nazis read, and it was full of pro-Nazi propaganda. Well, he was a friend of H. Keith Thompson. Thompson wrote articles for, for him, and uh, they were close friends. This was the Odessa network, um, and H. Keith Thompson was representing the mother of the alleged assassin of President Kennedy, the assassin who had the address of the New American Nazi Party in his address book and the name of Dan Burroughs specifically, specifically in his address book, and who was going to a German uh, Swiss school where they spoke German, evidently to learn German. That was his stated purpose, was to learn German at this university. Now, the funny thing is, I came into possession just uh, a couple of months ago in a very strange artifact, and I don't know if your people can see it. I'm going to try anyway sure. to put okay. it up to the camera. Okay. And just describe it for the radio listeners. Uh, you know, and is... just describe it for the radio listeners if you don't mind. Yes, I will. Um, this is a postcard uh, showing Albert Schweitzer College huh. at Sherwalden. This is printed in Switzerland. Uh, I managed to get to, to acquire it. It says in the back, Albert Schweitzer College. Uh, it's a, you can see, if, you can, if those viewers who could see it, it's a tiny, tiny village in the middle of the mountains and the yeah. trees and nothing else happening there. And yet they actually published their own postcard at one point. Um, we don't know anything about this place. We don't know if it was a front for American intelligence. The Unitarians who were involved were involved with some other organizations that come up in our story. They were involved, one of them was involved with Project Hope. And those who read Ratline know that Project Hope uh, was this uh, medical ship, this hospital ship, that went to Indonesia. And the medical officer, one of the Indonesian medical officers from Project Hope, is the man who met the two... Austrian Nazis on this remote island in Indonesia, and that's where the whole story exploded, was from, from that point on. Uh, Project Hope is involved, and something called the ICA was involved. The ICA was the forerunner of the American U.S. aid program, USAID. And for those who, who follow this sort of thing, uh, USAID has served often in the past as a front for intelligence operations, uh, particularly in Latin America. Um, some several people who work for AID in Latin America were kidnapped by guerrillas. Some were killed. Uh, some were training other people in torture and interrogation techniques. AID served as the cover for this organization, but its forerunner was ICA, and it was the brainchild of John Foster Dulles. Uh, and of course, the Dulles brothers red are notorious. Flag. Red flag right there. Yep. And so we have an ICA connection and George DeMorenschild, okay, Oswald's friend. You know, the guy who introduced him to Ruth Payne, who got all this stuff going. Uh, was working for ICA in Yugoslavia. And now we have a possible ICA connection to Lee Harvey Oswald directly uh, and some front activity taking place at this, at this university, this college in Switzerland. Um, if there's more to the story, I keep trying to uncover more. People are writing to me, giving me little bits of information here and there. And slowly a picture is starting to form of an intelligence operation that Oswald was probably what he claimed to be, a patsy. Uh, he was running some kind of intelligence op, whether he was a dangle to Soviet intelligence, uh, to use an industry term, uh, we don't know. Um, but he seems to have been involved in a definite program of intelligence 
uh, of, of covert action of some kind, uh, starting with the Albert Schweitzer, starting with the Marines probably, and then going to Albert Schweitzer and from Albert Schweitzer to Moscow and then Moscow to back again. So there's some more to the story that we were not told at the Warren report, of course, uh, and that still we still have information coming out about Oswald. It's a fascinating story, and there's a Nazi connection. And, you know, back in the day when Mae Brussel was doing her stuff and everybody was reading Mae Brussel and all of that, and she was writing about a Nazi JFK thing, I thought, well, that's just outlandish, you know. Um, and then, of course, as I got older and wiser, I realized nothing is that outlandish anymore, and it's quite possible there was a Nazi a component to the assassination against a president. In ideology, if not in sources and methods, but... You know, there was a source and method in Lee Harvey Oswald. There was something fishy about this. And I think readers of the books will start to put it together and see that there was something very strange about Oswald, the people around him, the pro-Nazi sentiments, George de Morinschild, very much an anti-communist. I mean, CIA at one point thought he might have been a Nazi himself, That's right. or, uh, working with the Nazis. So there's a connection there. And Oswald obviously was seriously considering contacting, or maybe had contacted, the American Nazi Party. Otherwise, why did H. Keith Thompson show up on his mother's doorstep. Was there a contact between Oswald and the Nazi party? If so, what was it for? What was the reason behind it? This guy who supposedly was such a communist. So I don't know. Yeah, and you know, that's a very important point, folks, because the whole raison d'etre of the Warren Report was to show that Lee Harvey Oswald was this lone nut assassin who was very pro-Castro, very pro-communist. Now, what is bizarre in all this, uh, Peter has just mentioned several times a fellow by the name of George de Morinschild. George de Morinschild was so anti-communist, he was called a white communist. And many people feel that George de Morinschild was the CIA handler for Oswald. And Oswald used to hang around this guy, and this guy was 30 years older than Oswald. So it was kind of a bizarre relationship to begin with. And to think that Oswald, being so pro-communist, quote-unquote, uh, would hang around as such a rabid anti-communist is absolutely bizarre. It makes one think that probably Oswald was being sheep-dipped for some important assignment somewhere to look and smell like he was pro-communist, if you will. Many people think that uh, he was trying to get into Cuba, perhaps to run an operation there, and the only way he could get into Cuba was to look pro-communist. Now, there's another interesting aspect of this as well that I would like you to mention, if that's okay, and that is Guy Bannister. Uh, I was chilled when I, read, when I read what you wrote there. Can you talk about that for a second? Well, there's a lot about Guy Bannister. Where do you want to begin? Well, the fact that he was a member of the American uh, Nazi Party, and this well, is incredible news. Well, this is true. I mean, his secretary, Delphine, mentioned this, and Delphine she was Roberts. a very, Delphine Roberts was a very prominent uh, a racist and, and a, and a pro-Nazi herself. I mean, she was, uh, she picketed, she raised money, she sat, she sat in booths raising uh, consciousness, handing out flyers, you know, against Kennedy, against the communists, against everything in, in sight. And her claim, quite bluntly, is that uh, Guy Bannister was a member of the American Nazi Party, received uh, the mail there at the office all the time, uh, and, you know, it makes sense. All the things we've been discussing so far about the political atmosphere in the United States uh, from the 20s, 30s through the 40s and on would seem to indicate that if you were violently anti-communist, you may look kindly upon the Nazi element uh, as well mm -hmm. because the Nazis were just as anti-communist as you. So there's an ideological uh, possibility that these two, two things would meet in the same person. Guy Bannister, yes, he was... Uh, former FBI agent, uh, special agent in charge uh, of Chicago. He had worked in the Pacific Northwest. That's another whole story. As you know, Brent, we could get into that too. But uh, Guy Bannister was a strange guy, a very unusual guy. And yes, he was very, uh, so strongly anti-communist, he hated Kennedy with a passion for that reason. And we know about what white supremacist uh, plots against Kennedy, including one in Florida. Uh, we know that there were you know, plots to, to kill him. Uh, by a lot of extreme right-wing people. There were articles in the newspapers in Dallas. There were uh, ads taken out, arrest Kennedy for treason and all of this. All of this was going on in an atmosphere where if you were anti-communist, you might be pro-Nazi. The Nazis were not considered so much the enemy, which is what I find so striking as someone who grew up in this country at that time, that in parts of, the, of, of our country, in the United States, there were uh, pro-Nazi sentiments, people who thought the Nazis hadn't gone far enough, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, who thought that the Nazis would have been you know, the people to save us from the communists. 
didn't Patton uh, in Europe declare that we were pointing our guns in the wrong direction? Then maybe give me a, a unit or two of the SS and we'll go into Moscow and finish it all once and for all. People felt that way. Our own generals felt that way. We had a, a, a slew of American military officers who were very pro-Nazi. I mean, general staff, uh, people who belonged to the World Anti-Communist League and to a bunch of strange secret societies that were pro-Nazi and anti-communist. Um, I mean, the book is full of this information. It's, it's mind-boggling the extent to which people in our military, people in our intelligence communities were, had very strong pro-Nazi sentiments, wished to protect the Nazis from per- prosecution, uh, and wanted to use their networks to fight uh, communists wherever they happened to be. How else do we explain all the support we've given to uh, dictatorships around the world back in those days, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, up until almost the present time? The support we've thrown behind people like that, behind Marcos in the Philippines or Suharto in Indonesia, Pinochet in Chile, the list goes on and on. Um, these are people who had very definite sentiments that were in, running along the same lines as, as Nazi ideology. And we had people like Hjalmar Schacht, uh, former finance minister for the Third Reich, yeah. one of the man who created the economic miracle for Nazi Germany, who turns up in Indonesia, of all places, in 1952, uh, and he's making he's he's asked to go there by Sukarno. How do you create an economic mil- uh, miracle for us? How do we do this? And Schacht is informing him the best thing to do is to create uh, a buffer zone, an Islamic caliphate that would stretch from Thailand all through Southeast Asia to protect yourself against communist China. So Schacht again is playing the communism card and the fascism card and the is- Islam card. You know, trying to create another jihad in Indonesia. You know, all of these things are operating together. All of these things are in cooperation. Create your own uh, finances for all of this. Uh, form alliances with other like-minded people around the world. Uh, this is what was going on. This is something that is that I write about, and every time I come across another piece of information about it, you know, I still don't believe it. You know, so I look at it twice and three times. I think I'd like your listeners to realize that the book is not based on a lot of speculation. I'm going after documentation, evidence, names, dates, places. Absolutely. Um, you can come up with your own you know, conclusions, but my conclusions have always been, uh, they've never changed in all these years, uh, that there is something very dark and mysterious about the Nazi party, its survival to the world this day, and its involvement in a lot of the problems we're facing today. And it goes back to things like this, like the Kennedy assassination. It goes back to uh, people like Guy Bannister, George DeMore, and Schild. Who, the, who were they, really? What were they really up to? What was their real agenda? And because there's been no trial because there's been no trial of Lee Harvey Oswald, because he was gone before there could be. No witnesses are called. All we have is the Warren Report. And who's sitting on the Warren Report? Alan Dulles, Gerald Ford, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, how do we get the truth? Guy Bannister in the movie JFK, um, Kevin Costner does a really good portrait of this uh, and portrays this scene very well. In the summer of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald got into a confrontation, a fight handing out pro-Castro leaflets on the street. He was just handing them out to passerbys. Now, what's interesting about this is the fact that on the bottom of these leaflets, he had Guy Bannister's address printed on the bottom. Many people feel that that's kind of a smoking gun that says that he was running an operation in tandem with Guy Bannister out of Guy Bannister's office. As a matter of fact, we had mentioned Delphine Roberts before, who was Guy Bannister's secretary. She says that she saw Lee Harvey Oswald on several occasions in Guy Bannister's office. So that's why this is alarming to find out that Guy Bannister was part of the American Nazi uh, organization. It's terrifying when you stop and think about it. Uh, and how and he was an ex-FBI guy as well out of Chicago. So the book is called, folks, the Hitler Legacy, www.nightfrightshow.com. I'm your host, Brent Holland. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. we got lots of time left, folks, and this is an explosive, explosive story. This is part two of one. Part one is in the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com. Now, he's got a couple of other books that I would recommend to our guest tonight, Peter Lavenda. Unholy Alliance is one, and also the other one is Ratline, and that particular book... Uh, we had a show on that that's in the archives as well. So this is really, really incredible research, folks. Let me look at this book. You know, this is not for the faint of heart, but you're going to come away finding out more and more how we got from there, the end of the Second World War, to where we are now. 
One of the things you had mentioned is the Odessa. Can we talk a little bit about Odessa? I was just watching the movie the other day with John Boyd. John Boyd was just a kid in it, (laughs) but still nonetheless a good movie. And it starts out, oddly enough, the reason why I bring this up is because it starts out with the Kennedy assassination. Exactly. It's so strange to go back and look at that movie now. Yes. And to realize that's when it starts, the Kennedy assassination. And yet no other mention is made uh, of the assassination and its relevance to Odessa. It's as if someone's trying to tell us something. Yeah. Uh, it's a very interesting story. But Odessa uh, has been poo-pooed lately by historians uh, saying there was no such thing. Uh, it stands for, in German, the Organization of Former SS Officers. Uh, and it was believed to be a figment of imagination of Nazi hunters, or of Frederick Forsyth, who wrote the novel that became the movie, The Odessa File. Um, and as it turns out, that's not true. As I show in the book, I have in an appendix uh, some of the uh, documentation that specifically mentions Odessa, printed by, uh, issued by the U.S. government, uh, intelligence agencies concerning Odessa. Odessa is mentioned long ago, long before Forsyth ever wrote his book. And then um, a journalist from Argentina, Uki Goñi, uh, managed to uncover in northern Italy uh, files uh, showing, again, references to Odessa, specifically to Odessa, in how Germans were being uh, ferried out of uh, Austria to northern Italy along the monastery route, which was a series of churches, monasteries, uh, religious uh, buildings, uh, safe houses, basically, run by the Catholic Church so they could escape to uh, Latin America or to the Middle East. So Odessa is the organization of former SS officers. I refer to them as Odessa still because I feel there is sufficient evidence to show there was such an organization. Uh, The name still exists. It exists in various government documents. Uh, It's used maybe as a shorthand for a larger network. Uh, Otto Skorzeny ran something called the Spider, Die Spinne, uh, La Aranya in in Latin America. Uh, There was the Bruderschaft, the Brotherhood. All of these were different uh, iterations of a Nazi underground that was used to help SS officers escape. You, You must remember that the SS was considered a criminal organization by the Allies. If you were a member of the SS, you were automatically going to be arrested. So that meant the SS had to look out for itself and create its own organization, its own underground, its finances, its transportation uh, means, uh, false documents, false identities, uh, in order to get out of the country and escape the Allies, because otherwise they would be arrested. That was uh, a given. So the SS was considered... Uh, a criminal organization, the Gestapo, of course, also. So the Wehrmacht was not. The regular German army was not criminal, but the SS was. Therefore, there was a need for this type of organization in their point of view. So it spread around the world. Um, it started in operation as early as 1943-44, especially in 44 when it looked like the end was near uh, with the D-Day invasion. So the SS started moving money, moving personnel out of the country for themselves. This is in tandem with the uh, Maison Rouge, the, the, the Red House uh, speech uh, incident that we talked about before, where the SS told the financiers and the corporate people uh, and the industrialists to get out of town, basically, and to move all your stuff overseas. Uh, the SS was moving itself overseas. The SS had access to a lot of money. They had access to a lot of gold, valuables, um, artworks, all sorts of things to finance and to smooth their way, even counterfeit money, buckets of that. And they were able to finance their, their methods, their, their system this way. A lot of that money escaped. Um, allies have never recovered it. There's one incident that was reco- reported a couple of years ago. The Bank of Portugal, uh, documents from the Bank of Portugal revealed that 40 tons, 40 tons of gold made its way by submarine from Portugal to Macau. Uh, from Macau, because they owned Macau, it was Portuguese territory at that time, 20 tons went into China. We don't know to whom. Uh, Another 20 tons went straight to Indonesia. So we know at least of 20 tons of Nazi gold that made it to Indonesia, another 20 tons that made it to China, most likely to help prop up uh, the efforts by uh, Chiang Kai-shek to try to take the country away from Mao Zedong, uh, something that failed. We don't know if Chiang Kai-shek would have used the money, I mean, to finance his army or finance himself. I mean, as anybody's guess at this point, he was corrupt, as, as we all know. But um, we know that's only 40 tons. That's a drop in the bucket. And that 40 tons disappeared. 
and there's so much more gold that's been unaccounted for, and Odessa was overseeing the transport of all of this money because they knew they would need it. They would have to bribe government officials. They would have to provide housing for their people. They'd have to provide jobs, probably. They'd have to do a lot of this work. Um, they needed the money to do that, and they could rely to a certain extent on German corporations, but they realized those corporations would be under a microscope as well. So they needed some way to hide. They needed some way to hide comfortably. They didn't want to hide homeless in the streets. Uh, and so they had villages that were very German in Chile, in Bolivia. Klaus Barbie. Uh, by the way, Klaus Barbie's name appears in that Hans Ulrich Rudel address book in the Hitler Legacy under his pseudonym, Klaus Altmann. Um, Rudel knew where he was all this time. Rudel had known for years where Barbie was located. No one else knew. Everyone was looking for him. Rudel knew. It's in his address book. Barbie became head of the secret police in Bolivia at one point. He had a government position. And all the Nazis who had escaped with him, they all had government positions. They were all running the secret police operations in Bolivia, part of Operation Condor, uh, part of this assassination and terror network. The first terrorisms that we had to experience uh, in, in after the post-war period were terrorist acts committed by these people. And later they went on to train the people who would later become the Islamic terrorists or the Muslim terrorists. But I just want to come back to uh, this gold. It's called Black Eagle Gold. And we all know that uh, during the Holocaust, the victims of the Holocaust, their teeth were taken out and the gold extracted. And a lot of this Black Eagle gold is that very same gold. And that is just barbaric, without question. Uh, Peter Levend is our guest. The book is fantastic. Uh, the Hitler Legacy is the book we're talking about tonight. In the archives is another show called Ratline. You can see that, and I recommend getting that book as well. And, of course, Unholy Alliance, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book covers, order all three of the books. Um, they're going to sit very well on your library and a good resource if you're living in the 21st century to find out how we got from A all the way over to here, where we are today with Islamic terrorism. Let's talk about that now. Middle East is on fire, Peter. It's always been on fire. Um, common enemy, of course, the Jews. What's alarming today is, according to Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles and Jerusalem, anti-Semitism is bigger right now than it ever has been in the history of the world. Can we speak to that? Well, yes, and it's a, it's a sad story. It's, um, it's a sobering story, uh, at least as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I didn't expect to, to find this out myself during the research, but uh, it's, it's inevitable. It's there. What happened was, at the, the end of World War II, once again, the Germans lost. I mean, they had lost to World War I. Now they lost again in World War II. Um, and the Muslims were just as divided as always. Let's, say, let's, say, let's not say the Muslims. Let's just say the Arab states and the Arab people in general, because we're not just singling out the Muslims at this, at this case. Um, everyone was divided. Everyone was, was at each other's throats. And Israel was going to be proclaimed in 1948. Mm -hmm. So we had a situation where it appeared as though all of the worst fantasies of the protocols of the elders of Zion were coming true. Um, but at the same time, we had the specter of communism. We had the Soviet Union. We had China was just taking over. Uh, the, the, the Communist Party was taking over in China. We had Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam starting, you know, fighting the French. Uh, we had the so-called dominoes starting to fall around the world. It looked like a very scary time. It looked like an ideology called communism would take over the, the world. So with the end of World War II, there was a large faction in the United States of people who did not want to punish Germany, uh, who were very suspicious about Israel, who were not quite sure we should put our resources behind Israel, who thought that was a losing proposition. And naturally, behind everything else, there was the oil and there was the Suez Canal. Yeah. So what do we do about all of that? Eisenhower, at one point, in I think it was 1952, has a meeting in his office, and this meeting is mentioned in the book, and it's, um, you can find it uh, if you look at the, old, at the, uh, the transcripts of the Eisenhower uh, Library. He had a meeting with, um, with uh, Alan Dulles and with some of the other top advisors, and he said, wouldn't it be a good idea if we could get the Muslims to declare a jihad a holy war against the Soviet Union. He actually suggested this. That's the exact same thing that uh, the Nazis wanted to do with the Muslims against the West during the Second World War. 
And the same thing that the Kaiser wanted to do with Turkey and the Muslims against the West in World War I. This was the same thing over and over. We just don't learn. So anyway, the idea was, well, now they have a common enemy because the Soviet Union is atheist. And what could be worse for a Muslim than an atheist country? Let's go after the, the Muslims and try to get them to declare a holy war against the Soviet Union. And this was born now in the Oval Office around 1952 uh, by Eisenhower, who decided this might be a good idea. Strangely enough, it was Alan Dulles who said during that same meeting, uh, Mr. President, what if they decided to come, come after us? And Eisenhower said, oh, no, 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 I have a good, uh, King Saud of Saudi Arabia is a good friend of mine. It'll never happen. He was only thinking King Saud of Saudi Arabia. He wanted him to declare this uh, fatwa or this jihad against uh, the Soviet Union. But then the CIA took it upon themselves to try to make it happen. So there's the famous case of the mosque in Munich. And I, ref I reference this, this story in the, in the book um, called The Mosque in Munich in, in my book. And I talk about how that started. There was this idea, once again, World War II is over. A whole bunch of Muslims of various kinds have been seconded into the SS, brought into the, the German army to fight uh, the Soviets. Uh, now they're dispossessed. They're displaced persons, many of them. They're scattered around Europe. They're from Central Asia, from the Middle East, from North Africa. They share nothing in common. They have no language in common, no culture in common, nothing, except Islam. And even then, Islam of their own versions, they change from culture to culture. Islam is not as monolithic as people like to think it is. Mm -hmm. So the CIA said, well, we have all these people. They have military experience, military background. They have intelligence background. Let's get them all together, and let's create you know, a kind of a unified Muslim front against the Soviet Union. There's the Muslim Brotherhood. We could use those guys. They're pretty good. We could use uh, some of the Wahhabis and Salafis from here and there. There's all kinds of right-wing groups uh, all over the place that we could, uh, we could summon to our aid. And so they did. They built a mosque in Munich, of all places, the birthplace of Nazism. Let's build a mosque here, and let's bring all these people together, and let's get them all motivated to go after communism, go after the Soviet. We'll have a radio station. We'll have propaganda. We'll get these guys running agents and running covert ops behind the Iron Curtain and all of this. Well, you know, fast forward to Afghanistan and then fast forward to today. Here's the CIA in the 50s and 60s talking about getting the, the Muslims together to fight the Soviet Union. At the same time, we have the Nazis in Egypt and elsewhere, in Syria and other, every place else, getting them to fight communism and Israel. And then suddenly, when the, with the fall of the Soviet Union, because of Afghanistan, the Soviet Union falls, suddenly this entire army that basically we've created single-handedly to fight Russia is now sitting there with nothing else to do and a lot of guns. And what do they do? The Nazis trained the PLO in the early days. They trained the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. George Habash, who ran PFLP, was a Christian. He wasn't a Muslim. He didn't care about religious ideologies. It wasn't his, his fight. His fight was getting the, the Americans, the British, the French, everybody, the English, out of the Middle East and getting the, the fall of, of Israel, put Palestine back into Arab control. We tend to think in the West in terms of ideology exclusively. We tend to think everything is a black versus white. Everything is us versus them. It's blue versus red. We, we're thinking in these terms. These are outdated terms. Because we think in these terms, we don't realize that the, what the real enemy is and how it really operates. This is about power. This is about tribal conflict. This is about people who've hated each other for centuries and centuries. And we believe them when they say, oh, it's about Islam. Or we believe them when they say, when they give us all kinds of stories. And we throw our weight behind people that we think, think the, the same way we do. And we're being played constantly in the Middle East by all of these people who have absolutely no scruples about it because they're playing a different game. And they're, they're using us. Uh, they're, they're our friends today, our enemies tomorrow, and our friends the day after tomorrow. This is what's going on. We don't understand it. We think it's ideological. We think it's all about Islam. And it's not. These are now power politics that are taking place. The Soviet Union has fell. We have Chechens who are fighting for their piece of the action. We have Bosnians. We have Croatians. We have everybody fighting in, in the Balkans. We have the Middle East in flames, as you say. Mm -hmm. And they're fighting each other. They're killing more of each other than they're killing Westerners. We don't understand this. We don't understand that that's really what's going on. Mm -hmm. But we help them. We train them. We train them in commando tactics. We train them in propaganda. We train them in organization. It, when I say we, I mean we, the CIA in Europe, mm -hmm. and we, the West, in the form of the Nazis, in the Middle East. The Nazis that we allowed, and in fact, in many times encouraged, 
to migrate to the Middle East. We encouraged the Nazis to go to Egypt. Dulles thought it was a great idea, Alan Dulles, mm. thought that having Nazis in Nasser's government would keep Nasser anti-communist. Again, that was the rationale for everything. And while the Nazis are there in Egypt, they are training Palestinians to go in in commando operations to attack Israel. And one of those who was being trained was Yasser Arafat, who later became the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization and Al-Fatah. These are the people that we trained. Al-Husseini, part of this program. Al-Husseini didn't die until the 1970s. He was around for all of us, around for setting up these operations in the Middle East. He was around for making sure that everybody was cooperating nicely. His goal, the eradication of Israel. But eradication of the Soviet Union, that was not bad either. So now we have to ask ourselves, what do we have at the end of all this? We have what the Nazis wanted. We have a strong Germany in Europe, a reunited Germany, at the head of the European Union, just exactly what the Nazis had wanted. That was their plan from the beginning. They realized Germany would be divided. Um, part of the minutes of meetings that we have of the Nazi leadership after the war is talking about the need to bring Germany back together, make it strong again, repatriate some of that technology, repatriate the money, repatriate the, the know-how, put Germany at the forefront, destroy communism, destroy the Soviet Union, and then phase two would be destruction of the United States and capitalism. Nazism represents what they call the third way, neither capitalist nor communist, something else, something different, a kind of uh, pagan, spiritual, uh, manly uh, cult that uh, the Nazi cult was. And so most of their uh, agenda has been satisfied up until now. And if they use uh, Islamic, quote-unquote, Islamic terrorism to provide the downfall of the United States, then their agenda is met. Then Germany becomes the ultimate uh, ruler, uh, at least in the West. And this is what they're aiming for. This is what I believe is still going on. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And um, going back to the Black Eagle Gold, is there any evidence that a lot of the Islamic uh, terrorist organization might be receiving some funding from some of that gold? Well, yes. I mean, as I point out... they've got to get money from somewhere, right, to maintain themselves. In the very beginning, uh, in the 1950s, 60s, up to the 70s, we had Swiss financiers who were running ops from Switzerland to North Africa, financing terrorist organizations in North Africa and the Middle East. We had a very famous guy called Francois Genot. Mm. And this guy was a Nazi. He was a dedicated Nazi, but he was Swiss. He was a Swiss Nazi. And he was a banker, very famous banker. He had access to all sorts of funds in the Swiss bank accounts that did not belong to him, but which belonged to the Nazi party, to Nazi leadership. We're talking about, again, tons of gold. And we're talking about money that was used to finance the upsurge of Arab nationalism all throughout uh, the Middle East and North Africa. He was focused on Algeria at first, the Algerian Civil War, getting the French out of Algeria. And then he started funneling the money into Libya, Egypt, Syria, and the rest of the Arab world. Skorzeny was very much involved in that as well. Otto Skorzeny was a major player in this. They were arms dealers as well. So they were dealing arms. They were buying guns from left and right. They were using the money to train people and to finance this, this type of terrorism against the West. A lot of the gold made its way to Latin America. A lot made its way to Asia, to Southeast Asia, which was my focus. I'm sure other parts of Asia as well. But for my, fo my focus was in Southeast Asia, where the money went, uh, and what justification there was for using it. Why would people want to you know, get involved with something as filthy as the Black Eagle Gold? Mm -hmm. The Black Eagle Gold, as you said, came from the concentration camps, mostly, but not solely. Some of that black equal gold wound up in the United States, you know, in the basements of banks in New York City. Uh, there was, there's been, only under the Clinton administration, was there any kind of a serious undertaking as to find out how much gold there was and where did it wind up? And I looked at those documents very carefully. They came out, the Eisenstadt report. Uh, it fails to identify all the gold. They say, we really don't know. We didn't have time to complete the work that we had to do. But here's what we do know. And this amount of gold escaped. This amount of gold uh, disappeared. We have no knowledge of. And some gold wound up in the United States as well. And for legal reasons, the banks held on to the gold because they could not determine from the gold bars how much may have come from Holocaust victims and how much was from gold coins or other bank accounts. Since they couldn't assay it, it was just gold bars that just sat there. So some black eagle gold wound up in banks all over the world. Like I say, 40 tons that we know of went to Asia, uh, probably a lot more. Uh, very barbaric. I want to jump to this right away because this was news to me as well, da the Dalai Lama and Nazis. 
can we talk about seven years in Tibet and um, how the Dalai, Dalai Lama got in bed a little bit with the Nazis? Well, once again, and I really hate to talk about this because people hate me for bringing up the Dalai Lama in That's this context. Okay. It's night baby. We go anywhere. It's, we go anywhere. All right. Okay. In that case, let's let let it roll. Um, remember, we talked about anti-communism. Um, anti-communism was not only uh, in in the West. It was anti-communism in the East. Asia had a problem with communism as well. The Dalai Lama's country was being invaded by China. Had been invaded by China. But before that even happened, in the 1940s, he had some interesting visitors. He had Heinrich Herrer, seven years in Tibet. You may remember the movie with Brad Pitt, uh, which raised an outcry until they put in a scene with Brad Pitt wearing a Nazi uniform with a swastika, mm -hmm. because a lot of people knew Heinrich Herrer had been an SS officer. Not only, as we now know, was he in the SS, he was also in the SA, the Sturmabteilung, the stormtroopers. He, he was a true believer since before Anschluss, before Austria was taken over by the Nazis. So we're talking about a real Nazi. Um, he has his cover story. He was mountaineering. He was captured by the British. He escaped from the British uh, prison camp and wound up in Tibet. Uh, I don't know how much of that story is really true. What I do know is that he was with the Dalai Lama at the time when the Chinese were threatening that country and at a time when U.S. intelligence was making trips to Lhasa to talk with the Dalai Lama and to arrange for some kind of escape of the Dalai Lama or maybe for a resistance organization. Harer was there through all of that. We have now uncovered in the last uh, year or two years or so that Heinrich Harer most definitely had intelligence connections to the West. We don't know if it was the CIA or if it was British intelligence, but we do know that he was operating at least part of the time as an agent for uh, the Western intelligence services. The Dalai Lama, as we know, uh, escaped Tibet with the assistance of CIA. Uh, and CIA started to promise the Dalai Lama, yes, we'll give you guns, we'll finance a guerrilla operation against the Chinese. In the back of their minds, they said, it's never going to happen. Tibet will never be able to defend itself. But we're going to train the troops anyway. We're going to send these guys back there to die, basically. We're going to give them guns. Uh, all the cables have been declassified. They're all there. The Dalai Lama, not only with Heinrich Herrer, but uh, had friends for, for until they died with Bruno Baeger and with uh, Miguel Serrano. And a little bit about these two uh, quite quickly. Bruno Baeger was part of the SS Tibet expedition to Tibet in 1938. He was an anthropologist. When he came back from the Tibet expedition, there's a lot of photographs of him, mm -hmm. film footage, everything else uh, in Tibet. He comes back to Germany at the end of, the, uh, at the end of his Tibet expedition and becomes involved in creating a museum of anthropology, which sounds benign enough, except that he wanted to have representative skeletons, skeletal material from all different kinds of races. And these were available in the concentration camps, and they were all quite fresh because they were still alive. So he would go and say, I want this one, this one, and this one. Make sure you don't damage the skull or the skeletal material. So they'd be killed, and they'd be sent to his uh, office to be defleshed, and then to be made part of his, his operation. The guy was known to have killed more than 80 individuals, been responsible for the murder of 80 people, and yet he, I think he never spent a day in jail. He was denazified, lived out the rest of his days, but he was always a friend of Tibet, always a friend of the Dalai Lama. There's photographs of them together, shaking hands, and all the rest of it. He wrote articles about how great Tibet was for the official uh, Tibetan website, the Dalai Lama's own website out of Dharamsala, until it was taken down. Somebody... I think, raise an objection. But here's the Dalai Lama and Bruno Baker, the Dalai Lama and Heinrich Herrer, two SS officers. And then we have Miguel Serrano. He was an ambassador to India from Chile, a prominent fascist. He belonged to the Nazi party back in the 30s in Chile. I have those records. He joined the Nazi party. He was in love with Nazism. He was in love with Hitler. He thought Hitler was an avatar, the incarnation of a god coming back to wipe the earth clean of all the, the non-believers. He remained a friend of the Dalai Lama to the end of his days. He died a couple of years ago. There's many photographs of the Dalai Lama with Miguel Serrano, Bruno Beger, Heinrich Hauer. No photographs of him with, you know, Che Guevara, <laughs> just photographs of him with these prominent Nazis. And why? Because they were all anti-communist. And, of course, his biggest enemy was communist China. And let's not forget Japan. Let's not forget Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism came to the West, was very popular in the 60s. Believe me, I know. I grew up with it. Um, we would never have suspected that D.T. Suzuki, for instance, had been a prominent fascist, prominent pro-Nazi during the war, and number to one of his best friends, the head of the German Gestapo in Tokyo, who was also a man called Karl Durkheim, 
who was also famous here in the West as a proponent of Zen Buddhism. These people wrote about Zen Buddhism. We idolize Zen Buddhism to, to a large extent. But they wrote about Nazism in such a favorable way that D.T. Suzuki even supported the, the, the rape of Nanjing and the, the massacre of, of Chinese citizens, uh, extolling the, the warrior class of the Japanese soldiers, saying this was Japan's destiny. This was Zen to attack China and murder innocent civilians. So we have to understand all of this. We can't compartmentalize this information. We've got to understand this is all part of a continuum of thought and of ideology. This is scary stuff, isn't it, folks? And all this is documented extremely well and in much more detail in Peter Lavenda's book, The Hitler Legacy. And as I said before, www.nightfrightshow.com. There are three books there. You should click on all three book covers and get these books. The other one is called Unholy Alliance, and the other one is Rat Lines, www.nightfrightshow. The author and our guest tonight, Peter Lavenda. Peter, this is essential reading, I feel, for everybody because it explains exceptionally clearly how we got from where we were to where we are. And it's just terrifying to think that all these years later, we haven't learned anything. We haven't learned a damn thing. You know, we're, we're still experiencing genocide right across the world. I, I think of ISIS right now. Um, and as you said, it's a perversion of Islam as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's a complete perversion. They're, they're just a bunch of thugs out for power. But we should not just discard the fact that uh, they don't exist and they're, they're not a clear and present danger because I really do feel it is a clear and present danger. Do you feel much the same way? I do. And I think part of the danger that we have is in this, this idea that if you say this is not really Islam, you're considered a kind of knee-jerk liberal on the subject, or you're being politically correct. Yeah. It's not true. It's, it's, it, what is true is that this is not Islam. And the more we say that ISIS, for instance, represents Islam, the more we play into ISIS's hands, because they want exactly. to be thought to represent Islam. That's their whole goal in life, is to be the caliphate. So if we keep saying they're, they're, they represent Islam, we're, we're cooperating with terrorists. Completely. Folks, our guest tonight has been Peter Lavenda. Once again, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover to get right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. We're going to have to start to wrap up now. But, Peter, I do want to thank you for coming on the show. And, and by the way, folks, there's a part one to the show. If you're just watching this one, check out the archives and check out the archives also for the show we did together on Ratline, his previous book. And don't forget to get Unholy Alliance. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you next time. Accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.